Yes, 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 you're listening to Word Spoken Podcast, the poetry podcast that brings you the best. I'm your host, Henry, and this is episode 19 of the series, and we've got Poet Curious coming on to the show, which is uh, really exciting because he is a, a very well-established poet. He's been doing this a long time, um, and yeah, really grateful that he kind of came down um, and shared his work with us. Um, so if you're listening to this, I'm sure it's uh, obviously kind of very present in your mind at, at the moment that we're in the bit of a crisis with this whole coronavirus pandemic. Um, so, yeah, if this podcast can serve any function whilst you're in self-isolation, um, just allow it to kind of let you escape from all the madness that's currently going on and all the kind of doom and gloom in, in the news. Um, and also wash your hands. If you haven't done that, you know, get some hand sanitizer. Uh, if you can find some in the shop, because they're all gone. Um, wash your hands. Yeah, remember that. But it's all a bit mental. And yeah, um, just, yeah, stay safe, everyone. Um, just thought I'd say that before we got going. So we've got Poet Curious coming onto the show. And boy, oh boy, is that exciting. Um, this guy has many, many strings to his bow. We have a little chat about that at the very start of the episode. So I'll kind of go into that then. Um, he was a teacher for 20 years. Um, and in that time, uh, he was obviously working with kids and he started doing a couple of poetry work clubs. Uh, work, workshops even with the kids in school um, and it kind of led him to get into uh, spoken word um, originally having kind of a background in hip-hop he kind of brings with him a kind of rapper style to his work um, but also he kind of packs a lot of punch and a lot of meaning in his uh, poetry so it's, yeah results in really really lovely pieces so the pieces we get to hear this week uh, the first one is on the good days the second one to see and finally this ain't a poem um, so yeah, the last one is up on IGTV and YouTube as always. Hope you enjoy the episode. Wash your hands. This is Poet Curious with On The Good Days. On the good days, my anger finds a clean page and wages war. Arm like military with simile and metaphor. I march to the rhythm of imaginary meter You can't stop my ink shed And only my pen knows that my flow's never been dead It's been organising Analyzing Disguising the timing of my rhyme And my reason commits high treason Blows colder than road despite the climate and the season See my agony the antecedent All that went before left my writing raw All the shite I saw my childhood in a vowhood where hoodies hadn't yet happened. But an unguarded comment would still get you flattened. These facts impact on my rapping. So my style's free of all the yapping and gassing. I'm attacking any track with a passion without ration. Dedicate my prose to those without cashing. I pen to prevent my lonely soul crashing. I've been told my flow's smashing. My content, grabbing. But as long as the shanks keep stabbing and the gats keep clapping and the MCs keep bragging about who be the dopest, I don't know. I let them all lay claim, maintain my focus. See, I'm just trying to grow like crocus in springtime. And no matter how hopeless it feels out on road, I'ma bring rhyme to sing in the sunshine. Show the screw face utes with the hats and the hoods and the night suits how to have a good time. Come let we skank down. Get your rum drank down. Tonight, I don't give a fuck about this skank town. Allow them the crack rocks. Allow them the postcodes. Allow them the closed-up mind if their soul's cold. I can't help anyone. I can just warn them. Because it ain't like I'm the mother that did born them. Sorry. Let me calm down. I get on this hype thing. I'm a shark on the bars, but tonight I'm not biting. I'm just inviting you to a party RSVP if you want to see me out in the street Where my beats keep bumping like a police truncheon Make you feel something like a vibration Get on my wavelength See my raps put a crack up in the pavement This is for the brave men and the strong ladies This is for the old, for the dead, for the babies Just the vibe Not all of that content I understand I require parental consent And so I swear down I do this for the grown folks And I'm serious I ain't making no jokes I'll make your neck jerk I am an expert And this ain't the whole poem Just an excerpt See the full length 
That ain't even written yet. It's unreleased from my lips. I haven't spit it yet. I haven't thought it, let alone taught it To a drunk crowd already to ball it I don't want to spoil it I hope you like surprises It will be surreal like clouds instead of eyelids I'm a Cyrus shining in the eyes of Isis For guessing the nicest, you get no prizes The evidence is here if you care to rewind this My image so vivid it will cure your blindness Huh? What? Nah, I'm sorry your highness I can't refine this In the dark and the grubs where you always find us I'm just defining the world as I see it. I'm curious. The Thin King. I be it. Poet Curious, thank you so much for performing that first piece and coming down to Word Spoken. Honestly, it is a real honour to have you here. Oh man, it's nice um, to have the invite. Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> it a lot. You are more than welcome. Um, I really like that first piece, mate. That was really wicked. Thank you um, very much. And uh, yeah, just thank you for blessing us with your work. Um, so I have so much I want to speak to you about. Okay. Mainly that's Let's because you've got many strings to your bow. Yeah. So I don't know how we're going to fit all this in within. I'll with, talk real quick. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just, yeah, uh, speak very quickly. But yeah, um, so, and I guess the reason why there's a lot to speak about is because you do a lot of things. I guess you can kind mm. of break down your career into a kind of number of sections really so there's one which is obviously your spoken word and your kind of hip-hop so i guess that could be your uh writing i guess your visual arts your education so you've been a teacher for many Mm -hmm. years you also run events and you host your own radio show yes so that is a lot to chat about couple things (laughs) (laughs) my first question is um after a number of years in the hip hop scene as a rapper, mm. what was it about spoken word that made you think this is a bit of me and I want to get into it? Yeah, that's a good question. And there wasn't really a moment where I had that that thought of like, oh, this is a bit of me. Um, I was working as a teacher um, in Northwest London and one of my uh, co-workers was the poet Sam Berkson, Angry mm. Sam, mm-hmm. uh, who was teaching English. And I'd kind of left behind making hip hop because I'd had kids. So the kind of the bedroom studio vibe wasn't working anymore. Um, so I was still writing. I loved writing bars um, and was just really doing nothing with them. And it was Sam that who at the time was running Hammer and Tongue in Camden alongside Michelle Madsen. Mm. Um, and he said, you should come along. We do this thing. It's a slam. It's poetry, spoken word. And I was coming like, mm-hmm, okay. Um, and then went along to one, um, went in the slam and I was like, oh, this is fun. I can just come and kind of do these bars. Like it's a space where that, that boundary between hip hop and, and poetry um, doesn't really exist. You know, people, because it's not on a beat and I'm performing it a cappella, people are responding to it the same way as something that I would at, at the time said, oh yeah, that's a poem, poem. Oh uh, yeah. Okay. Um, and it, honestly, like there was a part of it that was like ego driven mm-hmm. because I still came there with a real hip hop mentality of like, what's well, the slam, like a competition like a battle. Oh, well, I'm going to come crush it. I'm winning it. Yeah, I'm winning it. Like, yeah. I, was, I ain't coming back. Um, and I did go and I did win it. Did you? Uh, yeah. Really? Yeah. Your first ever time? First slam, innit? You know. There we one go. One from one. Should have quit then, just for the <laughs> yeah. stats. Quit once you're ahead. Yeah, but it did, it really opened me up to like a, a new space to perform in, a new way of performing and, and coming off the beat, I love rapping to a beat. I still rap to beats and I just think it's a totally different process. But being off the beat opened up just different possibilities for what you can do mm. that felt like it could add to just the the meaning within my writing, whereas with the performance became like really different. Yeah. So when so when it came to that first that first event, um, did you already basically have a poem written that was a poem or were you just doing raps without a beat? I was literally doing raps without a beat yeah. at that point. Um, there was a few things I'd written that when I look back on them now, maybe that process had already started because I wasn't writing for a beat anymore. So I'd often just write free and then work out how to fit it to the beat. Yeah, yeah. And now it was just like, well, that bit's not there. So you can say all of it exactly how you want. And if there's a bit that wouldn't have fitted to the beat, 
Whereas what I would have done previously is go, well, I need to take some words out of this line. I need to put breathing space in. Now I was like, oh, I can just say all of it. And mm. and then I can pause. I can breathe yeah. and I can come back again. I like this. <laughs> <laughs> so you kind of mentioned there that you feel like there isn't really a boundary or or, or on that night you kind of realised that there wasn't a boundary between mm. hip hop and spoken word. Um, but obviously in terms of in... Uh, in terms of success, in terms of the industry itself, there's a boundary, right? There really is. What do you think causes that then? I mean, I think just hip-hop is so much seen. Firstly, I think hip-hop as a culture is often reduced down to, to rap music. And rap music fits in the wider music industry yeah, very yeah, easily yeah. and has a long history of successfully doing that. So I think it's, it's, there's a large part of it that's about that, that there's not an industry um, centered around kind of pushing poetry mm. s- forward separately to the music industry and certainly not in equal terms to the music industry. Um, so I think that's a big part of it. I think there's lots of cultural things about hip hop, um and poetry that make them very different certainly in the perception of what they are culturally more than what they are kind of in terms of their form yes no i think you're right there it's definitely there's a massive gap there really but in a way that kind of shouldn't be because it's words essentially but yeah it is obviously i think hip-hop fits into a lineage of poetry in some ways more easily than it does into a lineage of music yeah no you're right it it kind of broke lots of boundaries musically um although you know there's still obviously um a, a definable history there um but i think as a as a poetic form it makes perfect sense mm, no. um, with the beat poet movement and all of that stuff going back. It's like, oh yeah, that seems like a natural progression. <laughs> so um, I want to have a quick conversation about your career as a teacher. So you were a teacher for a number of years, for eight years, is that right? Ten Nearly years? 20. T- 20 years? Yeah, I think okay. it was 16 years. <laughs> wow, from I got my that first, Yeah, I'm, um, okay. older, I'm older. So <laughs> you've uh, been a teacher for a while. Yeah. Uh, what is it you uh, do you think about teaching or how do you think being a teacher has influenced your work as a performer? Um, I think certainly in terms of like performance as a conscious act, it's something that when I was in teaching, I became more aware of mm. and crafting that idea of who you are as Mr. Besky. Um mm. So I'd already practiced lots of different performance styles. You know, you go like, try the angry teacher. I'm going to try the cool teacher. I'm going to try the slightly passive aggressive teacher. Um, So there was already experiment. And you're essentially like performing to an audience of, you know, 30 kids five times a day for one hour performances. And they're interactive performances like every day of the week. Yeah. So I think you get really confident in just standing up in front of a room of people and delivering something to them that you think's to their benefit. Mm. The audience didn't always agree. (laughs) One of the things uh, you mentioned in the uh, feature set that you did at Word Up the night that I met you Mm. was um, when you were were a teacher and you were getting into your spoken word and you kind of had this other persona as poet curious. Yes. It was quite a kind of hard line to toe in that you needed to be on social media and present with your creative side but um for a teacher that's like one of the most dangerous places to exist Uh, within so how how did you toe that line um i think a lot of it comes down to being as authentic as you can in both of those spaces so although my teaching persona is a different persona to my poet curious persona. Mm. They're both very like tied in. They're centered around the real authentic me. Um, and I think there's like, it's, I've always like been interested in the sort of concept of code switching. And in my job as a teacher, I often work with kids with special needs, kids with behavior, social issues. And I'd often find myself having to switch between personas in my job to be that guy who could chat to a kid in a way that they're like, oh, yeah, sir, safe, I'll talk to him. Mm. And then find yourself sitting in 
a social services meeting or in a head teacher's office where you're trying to convince um, a bunch of like often quite middle class managers that they shouldn't kick this kid out of the school and being and having to be better at the professional language than the other professionals. Yeah. And also being authentically a Northwest London guy who grew up in the same ends as the kids I'm working with. Um, So I think, yeah, that's all of that space was a really interesting kind of training ground Mm. for learning how to move your performance and where your performance should sit in different contexts. So having worked for kids uh, for so long, it's safe to say that you kind of would be someone that understands the youth of today, right? To some degree. So what would you, (laughs) yeah, to some extent, what would you say are kind of the, some of the biggest misconceptions about our youth in our modern culture? I think a massive misconception of our youth is that they are not politically aware. Yeah. That they're not politically motivated or activistic. Um, I think there's massive misconceptions around their kind of behavior and, you know, the narratives around like youth violence and knife crime and all of this stuff um, where people still talk in terms of this generation. Um, And often, you know, the people who were saying that come from generations where these same things were happening. You know, my my stepdad grew up um, in the 50s in northwest London. You know, and that was a time of like huge, like gang warfare. You know, everyone was carrying a knife. You know, they just dressed in sharp suits um, while they went and juke people. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, I think there's this kind of like sense that the youth are are apathetic and that they're not aware, and it discounts the fact that our youth have been increasingly marginalised, disenfranchised, underfunded, and neglected by society and maybe a response of putting your middle finger up to the people doing that to you is actually a critically aware response Mm, yeah no i think you're right um my next question is uh so you obviously did whilst you were a teacher you started to kind of do some workshops um am i right in schools with spoken word yeah so what were the kind of things which uh i guess you learned from doing that maybe the first time that you did it. What what were the things that kind of shocked you about the kids and how they engaged with the art form? Um, I think by the point I was running workshops, um, I wasn't surprised that kids engage with it. Right. I wasn't surprised that they had stuff to say and that they were looking for an outlet and they were looking for permission. Yeah. Um, and I think that kind of looking for permission in our young people is something that they're taught to feel because we have a a relatively authoritarian system of education where everything requires permission going to the toilet requires permission walking down the corridor and talking to your mate requires permission so to tell your truth out loud Mm. in those same institutions kids are looking for someone to say okay this is the space we do that what you got to say and they'll be like boy i've got a lot to say (laughs) um i think they were often more surprised that when they'd write things or say things that they probably felt were quite controversial that in, and it's not just in my workshops, but in a lot of spoken word workshops and creative workshops, the response to that is like, wow, that's amazing. Mm. Well done. Let's think about how we can like craft that and amplify it and make it stronger. And they're like, oh, I thought I was going to get in trouble. <laughs> and it's like, no, 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 talk your truth. Yeah, no, I th- I like think there's definitely a sense of that. Like the kind of school that I went to was very strict. Mm. And it was, uh, you know, like if any, if your tie wasn't done, your shirt, whatever, you, there was like punishments for yeah. those things. No, you know, not major, but there was. And yeah. it, there was a real sense of keeping kids within the straight and narrow. It was like a yeah. sausage factory. Like you're going through here. Um, and I think, I mean, I personally, this is obviously my own uh point of view but i would have loved something like a spoken word workshop in school i didn't know at the time that i would have liked it definitely not but i would have done uh and it wasn't wasn't something that was the case in my school and i do think that's an interesting thing in education because i think it's often that kind of like cause and effect thing that as school curriculum becomes more narrow um, and as school management becomes more authoritarian, you get people who see through that, who then step up and do things that are more creative and more expansive. Mm. So I think the the sort of prevalence of spoken word interventions 
in schools, there's a, there's a definite correlation between schools becoming more restrictive um, and more authoritarian. Yeah. And it is, I just think it is a real, it's a real shame, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's something which a lot of kids can learn from uh, and also learn, learn about themselves. You know, it kind of mm-hmm. opens up an opportunity for them to speak publicly about something which, you know, as a, as a classroom, whatever, like that's the, because you know, when you go to an open mic night and the kind of people you meet there, right, you're, you're meeting on the terms of hearing their poetry. Yeah. And their poetry is a very open, vulnerable version of them themselves whether it's funny whether it's any kind of thing like that's the main thing and i think that's why the scene is so supportive of one another is because you make genuine connections very quickly um and to kind of enhance that in a school setting was obviously what a school would want right so it's yeah it's um seems like a very useful tool for school i think it is and i think the the drive to not give those spaces in schools doesn't always come from in schools. Like uh, it's very easy to kind of like teacher bash Mm. um, and definitely very easy to kind of senior leadership bash. Yes. But I still think those people are victims of the system. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, the government have only really been involved in shaping education since the 1970s. Prior to the 1970s, the government pretty much left education alone to professionals. I did not know that. Yeah, it's so recent. (laughs) Um, And the 70s, you know, the kind of advent of Thatcherism and, you know, the kind of starts of neoliberalism, that's when government started taking control of the content of school curriculum. You know, it's a a little while to move into actually giving a national curriculum. Mm. I was lucky enough to be, I'm old enough to have been at school when there was no national curriculum where a teacher would be like, well, this is what I'm into. I think it's really interesting. Mm. Uh, So we're going to teach that. And then suddenly it was like, no, everyone must teach this in every school because it's easier to measure the outcome that way. Mm. Um, So I think there has been a deliberate kind of intervention from government looking into an industry that is historically left-leaning, liberal, open-minded, intellectual, and saying, we maybe need to slow this down. You're right. Because we don't want people getting too aware of what's actually happening. Yeah, and I think when you hand a microphone to someone and you tell them to, uh, you know, and they speak in front of a room of people, they have power for, yes. that, for that brief moment. Yes. And there's definitely perhaps a sense of the school system being a bit cautious, handing too much power to the people they're trying to educate, right? Yeah, and I think increasingly so in these times of like the prevent strategy and extremism, you know, I think particularly if you're in a very diverse place like London, I mean, all of my teaching was in Brent, um, which is the most diverse borough in London therefore the most diverse place on earth mm-hmm. you've got demographics who are often victimized by society and to give them voice and power schools are shook because yeah. they don't want Ofsted coming down and saying you're supporting extremism with mm. this poetry um so I, you know there's lots of conflicting energies yeah no, you're right. Okay, um, I want you to tell us a little bit about the second piece you're going to perform. So it's called To See. Yes. Uh, so yeah, give us a little bit of the preamble, a bit of context around this second piece. Okay, so this is this is one I perform at far Sounds a lot, so I practice the preamble a lot. Um, <laughs> but I'm a father. I have two beautiful daughters, and when they were little, I used to read to them before bed. And one of the things I loved reading to them was the Jumblies which is the, I think it's Edward Lear. Um, their heads were green and their hands were blue and they went to sea in a sieve. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And my daughters would ask, firstly, like, Dad, what's a sieve? And I'd explain what a sieve was and they'd be <laughs> like, Dad, that's ridiculous. Why would you go to sea in that? Um, and we'd talk about that. And at the same time, I was teaching and lots of my students had stories of coming to this country as refugees, as asylum seekers, as migrants that were kind of similarly precarious. So I saw this parallel between these very contemporary real life journeys and this kind of fantastical, fictitious poem from 120 years ago. Mm. Um, And so I decided to rewrite the Jumblies. So the whole rhythm and meter of that poem is the Jumblies um, and the references to Queasy Green and Your Hands Cold Blue and their lives of dishes and sieves, uh, a little references back to the original. So it was kind of a rewrite of that poem. Um, That poem is nearly 10 years old Mm. and it's sad that it's still probably one of my most poignant 
and relevant pieces, yeah. which says a lot about where we're going in this world, <laughs> particularly <laughs> right now. It is, it is weird, though, um, why that is even a kind of factor, because if you go and uh, see a band... Right, and they play a song from ten years ago. You actually want them to play a song from ten years ago because it's probably yeah. your favorite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's really different with spoken word. Yeah, it's almost like you shit. It's almost like <laughs> if someone ha- does have a poem that's for so long, like as you kind of mentioned, you're conscious of it. Yeah. Whereas in music, this is the opposite. No, the Rolling Stones <laughs> are never going to apologize for yeah. like a forty-year-old song, yeah. and if they don't play it, you're going to be screwing at your yeah. two hundred pound ticket. It's weird why that is the case. So let's jump in and listen to your second piece. This is Poet Curious with To See. They went to sea in a ship they did. In a ship they went to sea. Inspired by all that their friends would say at the crack of dawn on a stormy day with their kids they fled to sea. They saved for months. A few thousand pounds. A couple pulled out and a few more were drowned but the rest called aloud. We had no choice. Oppression has taken our rights and our voice and our governments all talk in spin. Far and few. Far and few are the lands where the refugees live. The things they've seen and the things they knew meant they went to sea just to live. Now they sailed across seas in a truck they did in a truck that drove so fast. With only a couple survivors' tales, the blindest faith in the memory of wailing mothers whose sons didn't last. And they spend their nights in monoxide haze And each of them says how many more days Though I feel so rough and this voyage be longer Hope that my dad wasn't rash nor wrong Though he cried all the way in the car Far and few Far and few are the lands where the refugees live Queasy green and their hands cold blue But they went to sea just to live Now the memories of slaughter bore deep in Cause slaughter's bore deep in So to keep themselves sane, they sang and drank in between borders of distant lands and they shiver for more than the cold. All nights and days became as one, with thoughts of home and days of fun before the storm, before the gun, before the last hug from their mum in the shade of the mountains brown. Far and few, far and few are the lands where the refugees live. They head for green and pastures new, but they went to sea just to live. Now they sail to the western seas, of course, to lands that are famed for their riches, and then work long days for very low pay, and when certain men come, they have to hide away from their life of dishes and sieves. No employee rights, though many didn't need them, because working your ass off to some people's freedom, and after a meal and a shave of a razor, the rest gets wrapped in a pinky paper and sent in a package back home. Far and few. Far and few are the lands where the refugees live. Now their beds are clean and their shoes are new and they feel like they're starting to live. And in 20 years they might go back, in 20 years or more. It all depends on how they've grown, in a land without family, away from the home and the state of the homeland too. Though most won't go back. If they built up a life, with a job and some kids, a house and a wife, they'll live as your neighbour. Moan about rain, the queues for the doctor, the price of the train and eventually the immigrants too. It's ironic, but it's true. Because far and few, far and few are the lands where the refugees live. They're just like me and they're just like you and they have the same rights to live. Mate, thank you so much for performing that piece. I can really see why, um, you know, even though that poem is 10 years old, mm. you still perform it because it's ever relevant, right? It's. Um, it, I feel increasingly relevant. Mm. I feel that we're actually in a worse state now with the refugee crisis and migration conversations mm. than we were when I wrote it. I mean, I wrote that largely in response to some of the early kind of European migration, particularly the Albanian kind of migrations of the late 90s, early 2000s. Mm. Um, And that's pre so much of the massive waves of migration and people escaping war 
um, that are happening now. So yeah, more more relevant now. Yeah, I mean, I think there has a, there's there's been a lot that has changed, but as mm. I said, the the kind of words and the message. Yeah, I think you're right. It's more relevant than it was maybe when you first wrote it. Yeah. So yeah. thank you for performing that piece. Pleasure, that, man. that was a real honor. Um, so I wanted to speak to you uh, next about the events that you run. Yes. So um, you run a night called Rise Up. Yep. Um, and you've also got a uh, like a, a workshop coming up called Free Writing Fridays, right? Yes. So tell us a little bit about what people can expect from those nights. Um, well, with Rise Up, um, Rise Up is an open mic night. Um, it's It started because I was, well, I was teaching. Again, this is another colleague. Mm-hmm. Um, and Carla, Prestige Carla, who we co-host together, it was her concept. She knew that I was hosting Hammer and Tongue in Camden. I took over from Sam um, and she said, oh, I want to run a night. And, I was, and she was like, but you have to help me because you know what you're doing. And I was like, yeah, cool. You know, thinking, mm-hmm, of course you do. Um, and literally within a 15 minute break time, she'd phoned up a venue, booked a date like two months away and was like, right, we've got a place in Kensal Rise. We're doing this night. Um, hence the name Rise Up because it was specific to Kensal Rise. Um, It's a little bit of a bait name, I feel now. There's a lot of rise-ups out there. Um, But yeah, so it started as what we thought would be a one-off. And after doing that, it was, you know, fairly successful. And we found a home in the Tone Coffee Shop, which was like a hip-hop cafe in Wilsdon. Mm. We're both Brent. We're both Northwest. So we wanted to bring poetry and... Poetry and hip hop together was one kind of core aim. And the other was to bring this kind of night to Northwest London because there wasn't really anything going on at the time, mm. um, you know, which is changing. I know we we're talking about Word Up before yeah. Yeah. Um, who were doing wicked things in Halston. Yeah. Um, so that's like a straight up open mic, no feature spots, free entry, um, some pre sign up on Instagram, sign up on the door. Um, and then we were very conscious when we put the night together that we wanted a format that allowed enough space in the night for people to actually talk to each other and spend time building community and building networks. Um, because sometimes, you know, you can go to a night and I understand the energy that's like, oh, I want everyone on that wants to get on, you know, so we've got 500 open micers in this three hours. So therefore we can't have a break. And I get that energy, but I also find it frustrating sometimes because I want to talk to people. And after 10 poems, I I love poetry now, Um, (laughs) but I can't digest anymore at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So, and I think it was a bit of a risk because we were worried that people would be like, oh, you couldn't get me on, but you did have six breaks. Yeah. And we're like, so we're very conscious of explaining the rationale behind that. I'm really sticking to the format. And it was a friend, Paula Varjak, who's amazing writer, poet, performer, who I remember having a conversation with her a few years back. And she was talking about how events work mostly on successful format. And if you fill the format, well, you get a good event. Right. But if you start sacrificing your format to your content, then you jeopardize your night. So we've been really kind of stronging and like we can only have this many people but everyone will get to talk to them. Yeah. And if you don't get on one month, just support the people who are on and come back next month. And yeah, and we're like nearly four years deep now. So four years in. Yeah. It's it's been going well. I like think you, I think you make a good, good point there. And I think keeping that format can like consistent is definitely the key to a good night. Mainly because uh, you know what to expect when you turn up. Like if, if you're kind of coming and you, you're not sure whether you're going to perform and you may be and and you might not. And then you don't know how long it's going to go on for. You don't know when you're going to have to go home. That uncertainty is a bit annoying sometimes, isn't it? Yeah. And if you are the poet who gets on at like five to 11, which is like 25 minutes after the scheduled end of the night and you perform your piece to the seven people who've like hung out to the end, it's not the same energy as like knowing you're going to talk to a full room. Yes. And then you're actually going to get to talk about your work Mm. to a full room and they get to respond to you and you get to be friends. Yeah. (laughs) That was a big part of it is the word community is banded around a lot in the arts, Mm -hmm. you know, particularly because the arts council love it when you're doing uh, a bid, uh, which we're, we're, we're trying to do at the moment <laughs> yeah. it's hard man yeah um but we genuinely put that community building at the center of what we do and we build the community around poetry um but it's not just a byproduct 
of running an open mic night. So mm. that's that's what we pride ourselves on. And so far, the the, res- the responses have been great, and we've got people who have been to almost every one. Um, and people keep coming back and new people keep coming yeah and not just poets yeah which is beautiful when people turn up and go no i don't write i just saw this and thought it looked cool yeah that that is something i do notice you don't get many people like that at an open mic night most people there are there at least in some form wanting to get up on the mic yeah they're either wanting to get on the mic or they're the friend of the person who's getting on the mic yeah but it doesn't extend beyond that very often and i love it when i ask someone do you want to sign up and they're like oh no (laughs) like i just wanted to come and watch and it's like yes yes that's (laughs) what we want that's my core demographic we want more of that um so i guess yeah let's have a little chat then about what you're going to be doing with these free writing fridays so i kind of read the like bio to the night and it does sound like a really cool concept it sounds like like something uh, maybe not anyone else is doing it. And also it's on a Friday night. I know. Which is interesting. It is interesting. It was it was also fortuitous. Yes. Um, so it's at Drink Shop and Do in King's Cross, which is where we run Rise Up. And because we are one of the promoters, occasionally they will just send out an email saying, we've got these dates free. Does anyone want to do something? Mm. So I responded to one because I looked at the dates and I was like, wow, that's a Friday. And was like, give me the Friday the 3rd of April, please. Please can I have that one? Um, and then was like, okay, what am I actually going to do on this night? Um, so came up with the idea of doing some kind of workshop, but something that's not too formal because it's Friday night. Mm. I was like, so let's have some poetry games. Let's have props and prompts. Let's remix the newspaper. Let's make poison pen poetry postcards. So there's going to be like glue and scissors and bunch of like metros and evening standards to chop up and make good news out of. Mm. Um, and then I kind of, you know, I back myself to host that space and keep it light. And with all the events I do, music is is always a massively important constituent. Um, so we're going to have really good DJs and we've got the space from like 7.30 till 11.30. So the workshop's the first two hours um, and that's a paid ticketed thing. Mm. And then from 9.30, we open the space up for free. Um, it's going to be an open mic with great DJs, enough space to dance, should you decide to. It's a great bar. Um, so I'm hoping that we can get a bit of a poetry party kind of vibe, um, which is something I've only ever done once. Okay, yeah. I once did a, one of the first nights I did was in Palmer's Green, and this was with Sam Berkson again. We used to do a, a night called Word of Mouth. Mm. Um, and we got this spot in Palmer's Green, and the night finished at like 10. But it it was open till two and they let us just stay and DJ. And what we didn't know was it was the only place open late in Palmer's Green. So once the pub shut, the place got rammed <laughs> yeah, and it was yeah. like proper North London, like garage heads. Yeah. And we had this night of skanking out to like jungle and garage and hip hop after an open mic night. And I was like this this is everything I want to do. <laughs> yeah. So I'm hoping that this is the start of something similar. Mate, I think it's a really great concept. Um, I actually really like the fact that it's on a Friday night. Yeah. Um, because I think a lot of people, I mean, I've so I've not lived in London for that long. I've lived in mm. London for yeah, like two and a half years. Okay. And I think uh, what uh, people can often quite find uh, when you kind of arrive in the city and get used to the culture is on a, you end up working and drinking yeah. and there's like, it's, oh, it's yeah. a bit of a cycle. Right. And, um, you know, a Friday night you get pissed on a Saturday, you're hung over. Like if you do that every week, it's really boring. It's problems. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's not, it's not great. And there's only a certain amount that you can do of that. So the fact that this is on a Friday night and it's going to, you know, be a bit more of a lively space. Cause I think definitely that, that will help with getting, you know, friends of friends and then yes. people that don't know to kind of come along. Cause yeah. And it's also definitely something I'm really trying to pitch, you know, within the community, but largely outside of it. So I'm really trying to get it to people who aren't into poetry necessarily who were just like oh this sounds like a cool thing to do yeah like something different um and drink shop and do do a lot of this so they have a good reputation for doing quirky creative interactive workshop things Mm. um so i'm really hoping that it brings in a different crowd because if you want to just go and drink and then dance you have got ample spaces to do that yeah i was like but in a city of 10 million people there's got to be 50 people going 
I just kind of want to do something a bit more creative first and then drink and dance. Yeah. Yeah, we're not taking away the drinking and dancing. <laughs> it sounds good. So what date is it? When It's 3rd of April. 3rd of April. Yeah. Okay. So, so guys- 7 to 9.30 for the workshop, 9.30 till, it actually shuts at midnight. So we've pitched it till 11.30 because then we can sweep everyone out in that last half hour. Mate, it sounds amazing. Okay. So then the final thing I want to ask you about before we hear uh, your third piece is the, um, I guess it's like a lecture or workshop that you're going to be doing at LSE uh, coming up. Yes. So that's coming up on the 21st of April. It's an evening event and it's, they do really good events at LSE. And I have a friend who works in, who works on one of their courses. It's like a master's course in social change and social justice, like globally. They do mad interesting work. So I've done a similar event there before. I used to run a, a night called Headspin which was a mix of poetry and philosophical dialogue. So we'd get poets to perform. Based on the performance, the audience would think up questions, vote on a question, and then have a timed dialogue Mm. and repeat. Um, So when my friend uh, Sarah Felix saw this, she thought it'd be a good thing to bring to LSE. We did it last year with um, Caroline Teague and Desi and a whole whole host of people. Um, So we're kind of returning with that. And there's going to be four performers and then four timed dialogues, good music, food and drink um, in the Shaw Library, which is like the wood panelled old school. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's got like the glass atrium at the top and oil (laughs) paintings of dead white men everywhere. Fancy, mate. It's super fancy. So we're going to go and, um, you know, unfancy it up a little bit. Yeah. Mate, it, it, um, that that again sounds like a great great event. So it's 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 kind of great to have a chat with someone that is doing so much in the scene, man. And um, thank you, man. So it's just really yeah, it's really great. Thanks. <laughs> I'm really honoured. Okay, so look, we are gonna uh, jump into your third and final piece, yeah, which is called "This Ain't a Poem." So uh, this one, if I'm not mistaken, is a more recent one for yes. you, right? Um, so tell me a little bit about why you wrote this poem. Um, mm. This ain't a poem. Yeah, I mean, it it kind of came out of, you know, as we've already talked on, my, my kind of entry to the slam world was a very kind of competitive, excited, like, I want to win stuff um, kind of vibe. And the more time I spent in the scene, the more I started to see certain nuances, you know, certainly around race and class and gender, that these were often in such an inclusive space, quite separate. Mm. Like there was definitely a black poetry scene in London. And then there was the poetry scene which was often quite white and middle class um and i'm someone who's always been interested particularly in race and in critical race theory and it 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 kind of was a piece where i was thinking about my own position and how it's a massively privileged position and that i bring my privilege to this space every time and it was a little bit of a kickback against myself or kind of like firing shots at myself to go, kind of go, yeah, but remember, this is easier for you to do. And it's easier for you to take risks with what you say because of the privilege you have as a white, cis, heterosexual, you know, good looking guy. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, it was a little bit of a shots across the bow of going like, yes, we can often feel that we're doing this important political work by writing poems and winning competitions with them. But what are we really doing? And trying to just retain some kind of consciousness about how much space I take up and what stories I'm sharing in those spaces. And am I the right person to share them? Mm. I like that. I think that's a very like kind of self-aware concept. Um, and uh, yeah, and I think it's turned out to be a really cool piece. So I Thank can't you. wait for everyone to hear it. I, I have just a quick question. Um, why Why do you think in the poetry scene, you know, you kind of mentioned that there, there was a bit of a split or, or, or there was, a, a, you know, when you were in the time of writing yeah. this, of a kind of the black scene the, and then the poetry scene. And also I've kind of noticed that there's um, also a, a bit of a split between like the queer scene and yeah. then the and the poetry scene. Yes. Um and uh I uh I actually did host a queer spoken word night the uh couple of uh, weeks back and it was really great but one of the one of the things I kind of thought about it afterwards was like um there's definitely some people for which that space is very vital. Yes. You know, to have that kind of safe Most definitely. S- like safe space is brilliant, right? And that's why they exist. But I felt like in a way uh to some extent the fact that those spaces did exist 
meant that there's a lack of inclusion by mm-hmm. race and gender and sexual uh, preference rather than an increased inclusion. And it yeah. kind of felt like a bit of a shame What why s- someone would feel like if they're queer or if they're um, BAME, why they felt like they had to go to that night and couldn't just go to any. Um, yeah. And I guess, I guess, yeah, what's your thoughts on that? I mean, I think there's, there's a huge class divide in in the poetry scene Mm. and i think that 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 cuts through a lot of things um i mean i think that when we talk about as we have the queer poetry scene the black poetry scene and then the poetry scene yeah and it's not the white middle class poetry scene (laughs) um it's an extension of the same kind of normalization of whiteness that happens throughout our society um and i do agree that i think it's also important for different groups of people to claim space and say this is our space of course yeah and it's not it's not that anyone's excluded from it. You know, it's not like, so you can't come in because you're not gay or yeah, you're not yeah, black. Yeah. Um, but I think there's, there's that that is very important. But I also think that there is a huge streak of privilege that runs through a lot of the, the kind of white middle class poetry scene that maybe isn't seeing when it looks in a room of people who look like themselves, not really seeing who's missing from that space and not thinking how do we include other people into this? How do we create space for people Yeah. Um, rather than invite them into our space? Mm. And I think that whole thing around kind of ownership of space and kind of privilege has a lot to do with it. Yeah. But it's in society. It's not it's, specific it, it isn't to the poetry scene. To the poetry yeah. scene. I, guess, I guess my kind of thing with it is I was shocked that it, even though it is obviously within our part of our modern kind of culture still, I was shocked that on a scene like the poetry scene, mm-hmm. which is, which is from, from the outside and the inside, but so open and like people are willing to kind of mix that it even there yeah. still kind of existed. Yeah. It really shocked me. Yeah, I think it, it does seem shocking. but And I also think that there is a lot of work that the poetry scene needs to do self-reflectively because there have been lots of narratives, particularly over the last few years, about the toxicity of some of the spaces within poetry. And I think this narrative that the poetry scene tells itself, that it's like more forward thinking and more progressive and more open and more inclusive, um, deserves some interrogation at times. I think that's a really good I'm not going to make mate. myself any friends in the poetry <laughs> yeah. stuff like that. But. Calling people out. Look, well, look, um, I think we should hear uh, the third and final piece. So this is Poet Curious with This Ain't a Poem. This ain't a poem nor a eulogy. No half-hearted spit on how bad things can get while forgetting how they used to be. Truly, this world confuses me. Like it probably does everybody. So I'm not going to stand here and name check everybody. My poems are not gravestones. And though I rock them in brave tones, I feel like I'm rattling slave bones on nobody say so. Trying to carve myself a halo. While I stroke my beard of fear and steer my career towards a payload. I'm sick at spitting on these worthy causes. But I'm sick of turning these causes into clauses, divorced from their causes. I'm feeling nauseous. In front of the same caucus Who clap when I'm raucous And snap like reporters But all of this All of this is nonsense Because if it really caused a fuss They'd point guns at us And follow orders To maintain order So I'm all for the war on the want If you want it But I'm more for the hugs And the walks and the sonnets I'm not for the fame Or the shame of this game I respect those they slain So I won't say their names through pasty pink pencil lips puckered with white privilege. And why would you give a shit to listen it if I ain't living it? Acting like my lines are legitimate. To talk on this ignorant system is frivolous. It's the pissing winds insidious and spitting seas of syphilis to rhyme a trail of Daily Mail hedge demonic hissy fits. We're a bunch of fucking idiots. To think they're going to listen, cuz. And change the game of killing us. So I'm filling up on love. I throw my poems in a pit of flames. I hope the smoke keeps rising up to signal we need bigger change. And this ain't about a gig. Because trust, I'd love to strut my shit again. But every clap sounds like a slap that twists me into bitter pain. I can't maintain the crude illusion, play the game and win again. I can't pretend my lonely pen can twitch and end this bitter rain. I can't foresee a future that is brighter, so I sit again. 
and try to find the point of writing fire with my stick again. So that was Poet Curious with This Ain't a Poem. Um, oh, mate, thank you. Again, that was really cool. I'm really glad that uh, we thank kind of you, got man. to hear um, a kind of piece which is a bit new, uh, newer for you and we've been able to give you a platform to perform it, man. That was really Yeah, cool. no, respect. Thank, thank you, you man. Um, it was lovely. So look, uh, we're kind of getting, this is the last little chat, man. This oh, time is man. really time whizzing by. Um, there's still uh, lots of things I want to ask you. So the first one um, is, tell us a little bit about your involvement with Soho Radio. So you've been running a show there for four years. Yeah, four tell years us, in June. Tell us a little bit about that show. Uh, well, the show is called Reaching Out. And it was actually started by a friend of mine, Ty, who's a old school UK rapper. Um, he was asked to do a show and he reached out to another friend of mine, Darren Chetty, who I do the hip hop ed work with. Mm. Um, so they started the show together. Um, and then Darren invited me to get involved. So I started on, I think it was like show two or show three. Um, and it was the three of us running it. Um, and then Darren got, Darren was one of the contributors to the Good Immigrant book. Um, Nick Shukler and Chumain Suleiman edited book. Um, mm. And after that, his writing career just blew up ridiculously. <laughs> uh, so he, he stepped away from it. So it's now me and Ty that run it. Um, but the sort of premise of the show was to take hip hop as a kind of the core, the nucleus, and then to reach out. Um, to all the different genres that kind of feed into that and also to reach out to particularly UK artists and new artists to give them a platform for their music. And then the strap line for the show was um, for people who take hip hop seriously. So we would then do bits where we would unpick songs and we would have intellectual discussion and we would bring people on who were doing hip hop and education work. So the interviews wouldn't always be with just rappers and artists and musicians. Um, they'd sometimes be with um, facilitators or lecturers mm. or writers or publishers. Um, and yeah, that's the format that's kind of like yeah. still running. I think so. Um, it's safe. It's safe to say that hip hop in the UK, I guess over the past kind of 10 years has really kind of boomed, right? We've really found our voice as a kind of country. Yeah. So who would you say um, at this point in time are some of the most exciting artists on the scene from the UK? Um, I mean, I think so much props has to go out to the grime scene as yeah. being some of the most important voices. I think there's there's voices who've been here a long time. I think Ty's an important voice. Um, I think, but then looking at like like Dave's performance oh, on the Brits. At the Brits. Man. I was like, that's a coming of age thing. I mean, say coming of age, man's 21. Um, <laughs> but I feel like, you know, people like Dave, people like Kano, um, people like Dizzy, even though people mm. might not think of him as an intellectual rapper. Um, I mean, I go back to people like Roots Maneuver, who yeah. I know hasn't been active in a hot minute. Um, but my kind of like youth was spent in Soho record shops in the like nineties and early two thousands when it was the real boom, when it was mud family, skinny man, Chester mm. P when mm. it was black twang, when it was Rodney P and, you know, previously London posse, um, and so many other artists that I think there's, there's space for much more kind of cohesion between those generations. Yeah. And I do, it's, I think. You know, the only caveat I would add to like the UK rap scene finding its voice now is I think it's refinding its voice. I think it had a very strong voice in the 90s and quite a strong identity and and kind of capitalism messed with that partly. Mm. The record label stopped investing. Like literally the Spice Girls killed UK rap. Like 100%. People got dropped from the label because it all went into the Spice Girls and then boy and girl bands. Yeah. Um, and then things like Operation Trident that really closed down the grime scene as a live scene that just drove it into something that exists online. Mm. And I feel that that persistence of hip hop generationally to just keep going and keep clawing its way back is why we have this kind of resurgence of the UK voice. I see what you mean. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think like people like Freshers, um, which is like Scandus, people like Archer, I think are really important voices at the moment. Um, I think Shay D, mm -hmm. who we've like had on the show. Yeah, Shady's my girl from back. <laughs> yeah, and MC Angel, right back to doing Lyrically Challenged at Passing Clouds back in the day. Um, I think there's like, there's mad 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 like new voices it's just hard to keep up with it all yeah 
Like, that's what I find. I'm finding new people all the time. And then as soon as I'm like, oh, I need to check that album. I'm like, oh, but I just found this as well. Um, so yeah, I think there's, there's a lot. There's a lot going on. Um, okay, so the other thing I wanted to chat to you about is uh, the other pie you have your finger in, mm-hmm. which is your kind of visual art. So you do photography as well as kind of paintings and stuff. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about uh, your kind of style in that realm. Um, well, I think the thing to say first is like visual art was the start for me right it's okay. like that's that goes back to i did art foundation after doing my a level in art after doing my gcse in art <laughs> um and it was through that that i kind of found video and photography and took that on as kind of the direction i was going and i, I studied film and then worked in the film industry like sweeping studios mm-hmm. uh, for a couple of years so i know when i started getting back into photography like recently a lot of people were like right i didn't know you took photos you know and I was like, yeah. I was like, because actually in this 10 years that I've been doing poetry, I haven't really been doing that. But for me, it feels like picking something back up that I'm really familiar with. Mm. Um, but in my painting, my style is, it's informed by hip hop. It's informed by graffiti. I hate terms like post-graffiti or aerosol art. Um, <laughs> but definitely um, the aesthetics of graffiti culture play a massive part but so does abstract expressionism so does lots of kind of like abstract painting like i love contemporary art Mm. um and the weirder the better the more experimental the better um and then a lot of my work now has a textual element as well so i do put writing into my art and sometimes it will start with writing and that will lead to choices over color and texture and process and with photography it's I'm I'm essentially a portrait photographer. Yeah, yeah. I love trying to capture people um, and not just like the headshot, but kind of like the really creative portrait. Um, And as a photographer, my whole thing is I want to be affordable. I want to be accessible. I want to be able to, again, assist my creative community in having dope imagery to go with like their work because they deserve it. Um, so yeah, it's definitely been a steep learning curve because I'm old enough to have been, you know, a film photographer, um, <laughs> and then learning the whole kind of DS- DSLR world and Photoshop retouching and yeah, I mean, I guess it's changed a lot in the time since you started. It has definitely, um, and but I do feel like there's just stuff now that I'm like, wow, if we'd have had this back in the Imagine. day, yeah, like. It's like the concept of dodge and burn. This is like really for the photographers out there, um, which now is like little tools on your on your Photoshop. Whereas back in the day, that was like literally putting paper in between the light and the chemicals and yes. the paper and like trying so to get a balanced image. That like you were like, you either got it right or you didn't. Yeah, we had to go again. Whereas now it's like there's so much change that can be brought to yeah. it, and yeah, when, I love it. When it comes to taking a photo of a person doing a portrait. What is it that uh, you, what are the kind of tricks and tips that you do to uh, allow that person to it, to express who they are without kind of really knowing it? Because I, I yeah. feel like that's kind of the key to taking good photos. The first time you put a camera in someone's face, they're like, okay, now I'm Stiffen having a photo up. taken. I need yeah. to be the photo person. But, but, but the best photos come from when, from quite a natural, unconscious place. Definitely. How do you get to that point with your Similar to a lot of the work that I do, dialogue plays a large part in it. So if someone books me for a shoot, we will have lots of conversation by email generally first. Right. Um, we'll really try and understand what the story is that's going to be told, understand how where their confidence is. Um, and then when we finally get to the day of a shoot, um, my kind of process, I shoot a lot of portraits in the little studio in my home. Um, I will collect the people from the station. We'll drive back to mine. We'll have a cup of tea. Mm. We'll sit and chat until I feel that we, you know, we've got past that tension. Mm. And then we'll, I'll be very open about the process. Um, cause what people often think is, and what is true is that being in front of the camera is the scary place to be having the camera pointed at you. And I think something that I'm always conscious to say is, I'm equally scared behind it because yeah. that's my responsibility to yeah. actually make this work. So we're sharing in that. Um, and then I will always tell people, you know, the first time you hear the click of the shutter, your whole demeanor is going to change again. And so we'll shoot until I can read 
that that has stopped having an effect. Mm. And that's when I feel like, right, now we're in a space where I'm recording a relaxed person. And then there's stuff from teaching that comes into it because yeah. it's about facilitating that kind of space and that yeah. lesson. Um, so it's getting the balance of being confident and assertive enough to direct. Um, also being able to kind of think on your feet and think, you know, where what's working, what's not working, what can we change, what have I got here? Um, and and then I watch a lot of other photographers and steal tips hmm. from other people. And I think, you know, th- th- that's a thread that runs through all of this is you get good at a craft by putting work into getting good at your yeah. craft. And I really do see the photographs as that's just the outcome of a process. So there's not, I never have in my mind really an idea of what I want a photograph to look like mm. or what I'm trying to communicate other than this is the space that we're going to be in. Um, oh, and then kind of being at times generous with time. Cause if someone's booked an hour, but it feels like it needs longer, um, not being that guy that's like, well, the hour's up so we can stay, but you know, it's going to be another like 75. Yeah. Um, and just seeing it that when someone steps in front of my camera, I see that they are massively honoring me. Right. You know, that is a huge gift because as a photographer, having no one in front of your camera, you know, is, is pointless. It is a problem. And it's, <laughs> yeah, it really is. Um, but so when someone allows themselves or allows me to do that with them, it's, it's a massive trust that they're giving me. And that's, that, that really is an honor. Mm. Um, so I treat it as such. Um, and then a lot of it's just then about forming a relationship and yeah, yeah. getting a vibe. Mate, I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense, you know, just having a little scroll through your Insta, like the photos are, you, you, you can see the personality in the person, right? Thank you you, you yeah. can just, they're just, yeah, they're just really great uh, pieces of work. Um, okay. So my final question mm. is as a man of, uh, many talents, I think it's safe, safe to say, Thank and you. as a man that, uh, within the spoken word scene is kind of a very much a large part of it and has had a lot of success. What would you say, I guess, kind of maybe this is uh, advice for people just coming onto the scene. How do you feel um, spoken word artists can fulfill their potential as performers? Um, I think a huge part of it is read a lot. Mm. You know, if you're moving into the world of words and writing, make sure you're reading you know, read back. I mean, the idea that like in any way I have made a significant contribution to poetry is a madness because <laughs> this is thousands of years. You know, I'm like, there are thousands of years. Yeah. And I think that kind of brings some humility to it and really knuckle down on your craft. You know, I think it's very easy, particularly in the kind of, maybe the slam scene or the open mic scene um, because we're such a supportive community. And I, and I think that's important. There are times when we can lack criticality with each other. I completely agree. And I think, <laughs> I think, and I do think this is an interesting thing about coming up through a visual arts world is the visual arts world is built around critique. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. it really, and I know within writing the whole kind of like kill your darlings theory, like, you know, I think, there are those spaces. I think in the spoken word scene, we can be very clappy and like, well done. That was amazing. Don't worry that you forgot most of it. And don't worry that no one could hear you because, you know, it's just about being in the space at the time. There's a truth to that. And I think having those spaces is important, Totally, but it shouldn't be in place of critical conversations about how we develop our craft. Um, And I think that is always look for people who are better than you. Always be looking upwards Mm. at people who are much better at your craft than you are as where your benchmarks are. I mean, for me, and I've always said this, whenever I write a poem, my first question to myself is, would Selena Godden like it? (laughs) And I've told her this. I was like, but that is where my, that's one of my benchmarks. And it's the first one. I'm like, would Selena like this? (laughs) And if I can hear anything in it that I'm like, "Mm, I don't know if she'd like that line, you know, I'd be like, then that line can't stay. (laughs) <laughs> and you know that's that's a big part of it i think focus on the craft okay i think that's some great advice um so can you remind everyone where they can follow you and also remind uh people of these nights that we've got coming up yep so i'm easy to find on the socials it's just at poet curious mm. on insta twitter facebook 
um, YouTube, although my YouTube channel needs some work. So <laughs> anyone out there want to offer? Mm-hmm. Um, and Nightwise, it's Rise Up is, it's, our next one is um, 11th of March. So that might be before this is released. Uh, yeah, it is. It's in the past. <laughs> hey, thanks for coming. Um, and it's generally the middle kind of Wednesday of each month. Um, the free right Fridays is at drink shop and do on the 3rd of April, Friday, the 3rd of April and tongue lash, which is the event at LSE Mm -hmm. is on the 21st of April. Um, we've going to hopefully have, there's going to be lots of stuff coming up. So the place to keep up with events, actually, this is, I'm terrible at doing this stuff is our Instagram at rise up events. Yeah. And that's where we post up all of the flyers for all of that stuff. And something we're really looking to do, and this hopefully does encourage some more people to come is we've had so many people who've generously given their time to rise up. Although they're coming for free, they're also giving their craft for free is we are working on a whole bunch of collaborations, um, to offer paid, feature slots at different events to reward and pay back to some of our poets who Mm. kind of religiously um, come to rise up. So we've got a few things going on um, in different spaces. Some that will be public events, some that um, are in kind of weird co-living spaces and stuff (laughs) where you actually can't, unless you live there, you can't come to it. Um, But yeah, so that's a big thing that we're trying to do this year is be able to kind of keep the the open mic free as the core but also put on slightly larger events in really interesting spaces and collaborate well look i cannot wait to see the fruits of your labor on that mate that sounds too, really man. really really <laughs> wicked so look uh, we're gonna wrap up i just really want to say thank you for coming down thank um, you it's, it's been an absolute pleasure mate, you're more more than welcome i think your your work is uh it's just so great to hear you have a kind of uh rhythm and a cadence which is really kind of punchy i think you can really see your kind of hip-hop past thank you in your in in your words um so yeah really enjoyed all three of those pieces uh make sure you follow poet curious to find out about anything that he's doing he's performing all over london all of the time make sure you go and see him if you don't if you haven't already so thank you very much mate and we will see everyone next week cheers